Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and this episode was recorded at Annabelle's in London in a busy bar. Enjoy. We have a bit of rotating buffet of panellists for you today, which is very exciting. Our first one is Akua Jamfi, and she's joining us from the British Black Dist. <laughs> welcome, Akua. Now, Mia Bays, who runs Bird's Eye View Festival, please join us. And Eve Gabro for Modern Films. All three of you, welcome to Girls on Film. It's great to have you on here. Thank you. Uh, actually, let's start with you, Mia. If you could explain for people what Bird's Eye View is and how it relates to what we're all about on Girls on Film. Um, so we uh, celebrate 16 years of existence this year. We began life as a film festival. We stopped being a film festival a few years ago, and now we're a year-round mission to bring ever larger audiences to films by women. So we're both industry-facing and audience-facing, the point being that commercial impact is the goal. And then we also do a lot of um, leadership programs for female filmmakers and female distribution execs. Excellent work. Now, Eve, tell us about Modern Films and why you set that up. Um, Modern Films is a distribution and production company, uh, which means that we, on the distribution side, acquire films to release in cinemas across the UK and Ireland, and then also across other rights, digital, television, TVOD, uh, SVOD, Netflix, all those places where you watch films. We set it up as, uh, I guess we call it an alternative to distribution because of the way the market is changing so much. I've been in distribution for a long time and sometimes it's hard to, to break the mold of the way you work and how you work. So as a result, we've set up this company, Modern Films, as a sort of break from tradition, which is female-led and social issues driven. So we try to focus on not necessarily female-directed films, although it is a key driver yeah. but just strong female leads or creatives or driven by that and then social issues is another side we focus on and you've got some really interesting films coming up can you talk to us a little bit about happy as lazaro okay um happy as lazaro is uh, an italian film by a director called alice roarwalker it's her third feature and uh, martin scorsese saw it when it was completed but he's put his name on as an executive producer because He's now sort of followed the journey of the film and he loves it and had her in tears when he was talking about how wonderful she is. But she just has a, an incredible realist, magical realist view of the world that somehow is very, very poignant about how a, we live. It is a magical film. If people want to see that, where, when can they see it and where? It will be out on general release from April 5th. Great stuff. And Akua, the British Blacklist is something you've been working on tirelessly for many years, right? Would you like to explain? Um, yeah, it's been, it's about, this is our seventh year and I launched wow. in 2012. Um, basically, it was a, a response to the fact that I saw there was a lack of information available about British black talent in the arts. We cover screen, stage, literature and sound. And it's an editorial platform that does news reviews and interviews. And we also have a database of British black creative talent. It's kind of modelled on IMDb. So the industry has been crying out saying that they can't find British black talent, they don't know who's doing what, and this is the way to make it visible. It's a visibility platform, and we just, you know, generally uplift and try and work with, we work with Bird's Eye View, we work with lots of organisations to help them kind of bridge that gap so they make 
British black creators less hard to find. Yeah, I'm interested to talk to all of you really, so whoever wants to speak, speak. How you feel the landscape has changed in the last few years in the areas that you're working in and if it is becoming any easier for you to go to big corporations and get support, for example? Yeah, I mean, post Me Too times up, like the, everything's just ramped up, sped up. It was a sort of acceleration that we all needed. It feels like there's a lot more unity. So before that, you know, there were lots of people in this space and it felt like we were a bit more siloed and somewhat competitive. And now, like, we are all kind of coming together under the banner of Times Up UK, for instance, and, you know, and joining forces, really, and not kind of just operating our little silos, but kind of but saying we're stronger together. So it's been very... There's just so many impacts one notices. There is a lot more openness, and people are on the ground, you know, saying, F the industry at large, we're going to get on and do it ourselves, we're going to work together. The British black community was a bit more fragmented when it came to the industry, we didn't have strength and power, but a lot more people, especially the millennials, those blasted millennials, they're actually driving <laughs> forward and telling us old folk, showing us old folk how to do it. So they are taking to the internet, they're breaking down barriers, they're not sticking to convention they're trying their own things and we're following suit and there's a bit more of a buzz going and I've when I started six years ago seven years ago there are a lot more people who were just like had small web series or who were writing frantically in their rooms not knowing where to get it out but yet they're now they're in the rooms channel four broadcasters Netflix going to America and being really well received quite a few people have had things commissioned in America which Six years ago, everyone was like scratching their heads, like, what's going to happen? Is there a place for British black creatives? We still have the talent drain, which is still a problem, but broadcasters over here are starting to realise, like, look, we have to, even if it's just to save face, we have to do something. So it's like that. Yeah, I think also it forces us to be more creative in the work that we do, which is an exciting part of it. But I think there is a real interest, and it isn't, yeah, it doesn't feel so siloed. It feels like it's part of the conversation but equally stands out because it's it's got a point of interest that people do want to engage with now we've talked about how supportive women can be and indeed male allies but mia you and i had a conversation recently about we, we both do a lot of panels and you got being your bonnet about what we call mansplainers can you talk to us a little bit more about what's been getting under your skin about? yeah um it would be interesting to see if whether we how we find a solution to the challenges of mansplaining in a panel situation but uh it just feels like it's not going away you know it keeps happening to me in events where i've really kind of contextualized a female perspective and then it's just got sort of tramped on by a man who's clearly not really listened and doesn't then look at me and then just carries on for like 10 minutes. It sort of forgets that there's any peripheral vision in existence and just carries on and on and on and on. Um, it's just not very dynamic and it just seems to be gendered, I'm afraid. Yeah, cool. uh, Well, I wanted to say we get race-splained. <laughs> I was going to ask that. So that kind of happens. Um, I've been in a few spaces where I think the opposite of people talking over, I think people can be respectful and men can be respectful of what, I'm saying being the, maybe the black person in the room could be the only. But then it's when they go away after they've heard what everyone said or heard what I've had to say, then nothing changes. So there's a little bit of pushback and talk, it's trying to tell us our story. And I don't work specifically with women. I work with men and women. But it's pushing forward British black creatives as a whole. And it's pushing forward narratives that are diverse and different. And having the people that we're talking to, the gatekeepers, as it were, not being so scared of what we're saying and not telling us who we are and our stories or your version of what a woman does or what a black person does. So we get race-splained. 
Well, Eku, is there anything you want to add before you sadly have to dash off? So, um, anything you want to point towards for people to watch or talk about? Um, I, I feel like I'm going to plug loads of TV shows, but I mean, I mean, generally, the British Blacklist is developing. What I want to um, talk about is our database that we're bringing back. We took it down because, as a creative, I launched it and I didn't realise it was so hard to maintain. So I'm coming back with Gusto, and it's just to help the industry see us see what people are doing it's coming back and when the database goes live i want you to you know put people that you know that you work with it's not to call out i just wanted to stress it's not about getting angry and telling people off it's also about celebrating the organizations that are not scared of diversity and i hate that word in a sense but not scared to tell other stories and not scared to let people tell their stories so that's what the british blacklist is trying to help do so just check us out and there's loads of good shows coming out bravo thank you very much for joining us thank you Now we're going to talk about a couple of current releases before we welcome our next guest onto the stage. The first one is called Jellyfish. It's directed by James Gardner. It stars Liv Hill as a troubled Margate teenager who discovers a talent for stand-up comedy. I think we've got something we could watch on the clip front there. I don't understand. You have to do what you have to do for your family. No, I do what I have to do. the children smile, so now let go We've all seen Jellyfish. I, I really liked it and I thought it felt very authentic and heartwarming and funny and also really painful to watch in places. What's interesting is written and directed by a man. Yeah, I had avoided this film because I'm not a massive fan of... I thought it looked like poverty porn and I really strongly identify as working class and I always get a bit kind of slightly wincy about these kind of stories. So shame on me because it's really beautifully done and... I thought he had a very sympathetic gaze on a young girl's... It's not quite coming of age, but sort of. It sort of exists in a kind of Andrea Arnold fish tank kind of world, yeah. but in Margate. And there's some quite strong content in there, and it cuts away. You don't see a lot of the difficult scenes, and I thought... She was just amazing, Liv Hill. She's tremendous. Eve, what did you think? Um, I was shown it early on as a distributor. That is one of the perks of life. You get to see films very early on, sometimes even before they're finished and have comments. And, and I equally thought, oh, no, I don't know. Male director, we're focusing on female directors. And I just wasn't sure. And then she is really, really incredible and then went on to, to get a Biffa nomination, didn't she? And the fact that it was directed by a man, I don't think it has anything. It's really about um, perceptions of the family and emotions. I think he really captured that very well now even that scene in the trailer where she says what have you got to make jokes about or, you know it's a comedy is so funny and and dark at the same time and yeah. i don't think gender then plays into that but it was in, family it's the way a young girl is being forced into adulthood when you say it's coming of age really she's because her mother is incapable of looking after her and there's no one's really looking out for her apart from potentially the teacher she's kind of forced into that i thought the mum was fabulous Sinead matthews she's right. she has a, a clearly manic depressive mum who's either high or seriously low and i think it's quite hard to act yeah. that convincingly and she does it beautifully she's one to watch i think she's really good and the teacher character is good as well because he's flawed and he's there he doesn't have the greatest work conditions or you know 
personal, probably has his own issues, but he sees something in her and wants to help her, but not in that triumphant way that will conquer all. He's just sort of try it out and try to escape. So you know, we would recommend sadness. Jellyfish, yeah? Yeah, okay. Now we're moving on to something more comical. It's The Breaker Uppers. It's currently on Netflix. Has anyone seen it? No? All right. Well, you might be interested in this then. It's directed by Jackie Van Der Beek and Madeleine Summy, who are two great New Zealand directors, and they also star as two cynical women who create an agency that helps break up couples in an attempt to avoid their own problems in life. Shall we have a look at a clip? Maybe I should go gay. <laughs> Man, you being a lot of dudes. Yes, I do. <laughs> How many dudes have you banged? More dudes than I have women, just. But the women that I did bang, I bang them more often, so I'm not sure how that works out. Mm. Do I talk about being bi too much? You talk too much. Oh, hey, lady! Hey, I wouldn't walk down this way. There's a couple of creepy dudes back there. I'd stick to the street, I reckon, the, the well-lit street. OK, thank you. No worries. Nice doggy. Do you find Kristen Stewart hot? Who's Kristen Stewart? I think it's one of those things like if you laughed at the trailer, you know you're going to love the movie. It's like it's like half the room are laughing because I actually when I saw this at London Film Festival, like, I was killing myself laughing. I thought it was hilarious, and then some people were sat next to me, absolutely stony. <laughs> but maybe they just had no sense of humor. But as you can see, it's really strong on female representation as, we, as well as being, I think, very funny. And it touches on a lot of great topics, you know, with race and sexuality, but with such a light touch. Eve, what did you think? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Thank you for drawing <laughs> my attention to it because I hadn't seen it and I just um, turned on Netflix and there it was, so it was very easy to watch. Um, it's written, directed and stars, the two leads, so they're, they're involved from the very beginning. And I think if you were from New Zealand and knew them, you probably have a different reading on it uh, on one level because it obviously has a lot of local humour, but you, you get it, it does, it does translate. I think it, was, it felt a bit kind of guilty pleasure or something watching it, uh, but it was a lot of fun and the story really does take a lot of twists and turns and emotions even through the kind of nonsensical hilarity of it all and then without giving away a twist there's a bit of a monster's ink I thought ending where they kind of take the, the misery of people and turn it into some oh, form of happiness that nice. I really yeah. I liked that and it's a lot about female friendship you know really the love story yeah, is between the two friends right so their friendship yeah, is exactly. is hilarious it's <laughs> absolutely brilliant yeah Mia Oh, I loved it. It's just got such a sort of rambunctious energy and it's yeah. really funny. And you've got like Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. They're all kind of connected, aren't they? There seems yeah. to be this quite interesting burgeoning scene there and it feels like it fits well into that. And it's yeah. just very, it walks a nice line between sort of risque and cheeky. Yeah, I mean, there's some really fun, slightly saucy scenes, but yeah. they're told with so much, as you say, gusto and brio and just that, that sense of mischievousness. It, it doesn't feel like crude. I think. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to speak to the director and one of the stars actually at LFF and they were such lovely women. And, you know, and they, they're just starting out on amazing comedy careers. And there's a great deal of support for them in New Zealand. So it's wonderful to see it on Netflix, readily for everyone around the world to see. And like Hump for the Wilder People, which comes from the same people, could be a bit one of those sleeper hits. So I think we recommend people watch The Breaker Uppers, yeah? Okay, yeah, very we do. Highly. Nice one. Thank you. Well, moving on to our next segment, we have an actress with us today who I'm very pleased to welcome to the stage. Muna Otaru, please join us. <laughs> welcome, Muna. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, we uh, first met at the London Critics Circle Film Awards earlier this year. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, The Keeping Room, because I'm a huge fan of The Keeping Room, which Muna was in, and not enough people have seen. Tell us a little bit about that film, because it's something everyone should watch. Okay, so The Keeping Room is about three women living together at the tail end of the American Civil War. Two sisters and their slave, and they're learning how to sort of live together and create this new life together. It's kind of a feminist western. Yes, it basically. is. Basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Should we have a look at a clip? It's our home. We don't have to fight. What's going on? We got men here. You got ten to come out! You bar this door behind me. If a man comes through, no matter what, you shoot. What? The crueler it is, the sooner it will be over. Why you come like you want a war? Two! Don't know how to stop. Nine! Oh, army. He's behind us. We can hold him. What was the experience of filming like that film for you? Oh gosh, I didn't have much prep time right. because we started filming in Romania two weeks after I got the job because I was taking over from another actress. Um, so <laughs> it was very quick prep and doing dialect coaching with the Jessica Drake, who's a dialect coach, and she lived in LA. So I would come back from my day job and then I would have to Skype with Jessica. And there was also music in the film that didn't make it into the film. So I had to go to leave work and then run and do my music classes and then wow. go back. Yeah. So you were singing and, and singing yeah, right? oh, wow. banjo lessons. Wow. Well. <laughs> well, new skill was learned. So I yeah, suppose it's not wasted, yeah. is it? Yeah, very raw <laughs> fingers. <laughs> and if people want to watch The Keeping Room, where can they see it now? I think it's you can get it online, can't you? Yeah, I know it was yeah. on Netflix mm. for a while and you can probably get it on Amazon yeah. as well. Mm. Tell us a bit more about your journey into film and acting. How did you start out? Okay, so I was going to film school at the University of Maryland in Baltimore mm -hmm. and then there was this little TV series filming in Baltimore called The Wire and um, I was working <laughs> at a restaurant and the producers from The Wire came in and I was really pissed off because I had a history paper to turn and I didn't know who they were <laughs> so I was like the last waitress standing and I overheard them talking about this show called The Wire. So I went over and introduced myself and he said, do you have any advice for me? And uh, the director, Maurice Marble, was like, well, you can come to set tomorrow and be my intern for the day. And so I went to set and I met everyone. And then I got a job as a PA. And then the next series, I auditioned for a role, which I got. And that sort of led me to move to LA and study acting. But you're here now... Yeah, I've been living here seven yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. And what are you working on at the moment? So I start filming something that I'm not allowed to speak about. Top secret, that's always the way, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I know, because they haven't announced it yet. So we start filming that in June. And then a film I did at the end of last year, The Thin Man, they've just locked pictures. So I know I'll get to see it at the end of this month, but I'm not sure what, when they release it. Tell us more about The Thin Man. Uh, <laughs> so it's about a guy who is being chased by five bald men in the south of France. Okay. <laughs> bald men. Five bald is men. Is Jason Statham in it? Is he no. one of them? No, okay, just no, checking. No, yeah. no, Yeah, wow, yeah. I'm intrigued now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds great. For you as a working actress, have you seen things change? Do you feel that the landscape is shifting? 
Oh, the landscape is definitely shifting because I remember when I did the keeping room, we're just like, yay, our film passes the Bechdel test. Because it was the first time we started talking about the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. And then um, actually, Britt Marling, who's in the keeping room, wrote an article, I think it was last year, about her experience with Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was amazing. I happened to be in the car when that was happening, and I didn't know about it until I read the um, until I read her article. And Britt Marling has always been a feminist who I massively admire. She's yeah. written uh, films and directed films, and, and she's incredible. Yeah. So, did you feel a sense of sisterhood with her, working with her, that made it particularly special? Yeah, absolutely. Even before. I went to Romania to film. We would Skype, so talk about our approaches. And so she was very accessible from the very beginning. So yeah. that was really, really helpful. And what's the future for you? I know you can't talk about certain projects, but yeah. um, do you like kind of moving around from Hollywood and smaller projects? And theater? I mean, indie film is my heart. Right. That's like, I absolutely love independent film and our house films. But yes, it's <laughs> when I look at the kind of work I do, it's, I do pretty weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it is a funny but, job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I do, I do appreciate it, and I do like doing television. You know, sometimes, and because each medium, my approach is quite different. I sort of have mm -hmm. to adjust depending on yeah. where, where if it be theatre or be it film or be it TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you feel particularly enthusiastic about the opportunity to work with women writers and directors? Is that something you seek out or just hope for? Oh, yes. I intend to be one of those one day, hopefully, as well. <laughs> Great, yeah. good. But absolutely, like Julia Hart wrote um, The Keeping yeah. Room and now she's directing, which is amazing. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can't wait to see that. That's brilliant. Yeah, she, she has a film out now called Fast Collar. Okay. And so I'm hoping I get to see it here soon. I yeah. want to see that, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, and best luck in the future. We can't wait thank to see you. what you do next. Thank you so much, Rina. Thank Round you. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, we thought, seeing as we're in Annabelle's in this rather glamorous situation, we should talk about nightclub scenes in movies. We thought it'd be kind of fun. I mean, ones that popped into my head are many. Saturday Night Fever, 24-hour party people. It's all gone peak tong. Human traffic, basic instinct, desperate seeking season, loads. But we've all picked out a few that we thought we might want to talk about. So, Eve, which ones grabbed you, came to the front of your mind? I thought about it for a long time because there's a lot. Um, I remember once, if, just as an anecdote, I lived in rural China for <laughs> six months and I was telling them about my life and how I had sometimes worked in bars in the summer and stuff. And I thought they understood my life. And then there was a nightclub scene in a film. And they said, oh, look, Eve, just like you. And it was like some really bad Sylvester Stallone kind of <laughs> nightclub gangster film. I said, oh, no, <laughs> that's not my life. But then I started thinking about all these nightclub scenes and what they represent and how they are representative of a time. So I came up with three sort of completely different ones. Uh, the Riot Club, Neon Demon, and American Psycho. And they're all really different films, aren't they? But I mean, the Riot Club's more of a private members club situation um, it was based on the play posh yeah that's right and it's, it's not a club that you'd want to be a member of <laughs> no and that's the reason I, I was very interested in this film as a Canadian and I actually released this film in Canada and I was really intrigued by the portrayal of both this, the story and the characters and if you have to read it ironically or as a kind of creepy and cheeky and I think 
when it was released, there was a sort of time of, even though it's not that long ago, a bit righteousness where it was seen as celebrating the people it depicted. Yeah. Whereas I think now it would be watched very differently and equally changing the title from the stage play's original posh to Riot Club, I think it lost its, its irony or its political statement that it had because it really does glorify the rich but also kind of downplay the importance of, of wealth in a society where yeah. we actually have a moral code. And this is a female director as well. Female Lone director, Lone Schofer, yeah. Schofer who, so she, yeah. who, who I love, and you know, from Italian for Beginners. And she really has a, a good way of, of portraying characters and stories, and also being Danish and making a very British story. Sometimes that can work and sometimes not. And, and yeah, the reviews were mixed on it, but I, I did like the way it flipped itself. And, and now it's sort of flipped again, I think, in, in, in the near Brexit <laughs> era, I do post-Brexit Yeah, it's very era. interesting that we often find ourselves talking, if, if this had come out two years later or two years earlier, and we live in such changing times that actually it's so interesting to revisit films quite regularly, I think. What about Neon Demon? Was it, what, what did it appeal to you about that one? And equally, because it's about this young woman, a model, sort of being objectified about her beauty and in the space and in the club is where she was particularly lost. And she starts to realise that all the difficulties and, and that she's facing in her life can become her strength and she starts to use that space to her own advantage I think but it's almost unconscious until the end I mean it's a, it also is a slightly problematic film I think nightclub if we're focusing on <laughs> nightclub scenes they're hard but she found this sort of entrapment and escapism in the club that I, I like the way that was done and American Psycho, which I watched again last night, and I thought, oh, great choice, and I'd forgotten how funny it is. I mean, darkly, darkly funny and horrifying. Yeah. So by a female director, Mary Heron, uh, Canadian, actually, from 2000, starring Christian Bale, based on a Bret Easton Ellis novel. And I was reading about the early reviews of it, that this, scene, this film was seen as misogynistic, which is one reading, for sure. But it was that nightclub scene that really sparked something in me. Because if you remember, he goes to the bar and he has some tickets for a drink. And she says, oh, those aren't good anymore. $25, please. And he's, he's a bit annoyed with her for not taking the free drink tickets and, and for it being so expensive. And she turns around to get the drink. And he says to her something really quite nasty about what he wants to do to her. And she turns around, gives him the drink, takes the money, and they carry on. And there's a moment of kind of distancing of him looking at himself in the mirror saying these things, things so she either didn't hear him or she just ignored him because she's used to this kind of treatment in the bar or it was an inner monologue that nobody heard but he thinks is very real and that's where the mirror has that mm. kind of um, detachment from the reality I don't think it is a misogynistic film because it obviously it's not a character that's presented as at all likable, to put it mildly. Um, no, and it's amazing to rewatch it. Yeah, it's Chloe Savigny and Reese Witherspoon and yeah. Justin Theroux and Willem Dafoe. And, uh, and, yeah. and some of the nightclub scenes is rather fun. They're, they're, they're these models dressed basically like desperately seeking Susan with these massive kind of 80s skirts and then kind of people with teddy bear ears. It's rather fun, actually, in a terribly disturbing way. Yeah, and yeah. it does look like he's trying to escape this male world that he's found himself in that he doesn't even know how to, yeah. to be in. It. Yeah, exactly. Mia, Weekender. Yeah, Weekender. I wanted to talk about, um, give props to a film from 1992. So it's uh, Weekender is a 20-minute film made by Andrew Whiston, who's professionally known as Wiz, who's made a ton of amazing music videos like Oasis, Marilyn Manson and loads of others. But this is, was, was one of his debut films and it really massively inspired Train Spotting. So basically, Danny Boyle said without Weekender, there would never have been train spotting. So it was made at the kind of height of the rave culture scene, and it's set to one like mega mix song by Flowered Up. 
and the name of the song is Weekender. And it really sort of charts the kind of getting ready of a boy who lives for the weekend. And it's drug heavy. And it really sort of follows the kind of highs and lows of like the music and how you, when you, you're coming up. Yeah. Uh, and then the kind of post club experience when you hit the light and you look really pale and pasty and you know, you're a bit sweaty and you sort of, but you're still maybe kind of the, the shades of the evening are still on you and the sweat's still on you. And it's really beautifully done and it's really, really cinematic. It was shot on film. It sort of was very, very influential in its camera work. And um, so I, yeah, I wanted to give props to this film because I think it really does something that is really hard to do on film, which is to actually personify what it feels like to be in a club yeah. and it does it in a really kind of great working class representation like it's got a very sympathetic male gaze and so I wanted to t sort of yeah lift that one up because I just think I don't really love many club scenes I think most of the time they just feel a bit embarrassing yeah. but um, this one does it really beautifully yeah I do remember at the time because I was quite big in the rave scene in the early 90s and then this was probably the first one that came up that everyone went okay yeah that's real that that is how it was as opposed to, you know, some kind of confection, yeah. And did you want to briefly mention 120 BPM as well? Yeah, I was just, I was interested in, again, sort of the sympathetic male gaze, the, the Robin Campillo's uh, film of the ACT UP movement in Paris in the early 90s, again, so it's set in the same era, but made only quite recently. This is such a beautiful film, and it's really moving and devastating. And the club scenes, the gay club scenes, are really, really sensual and yeah. just beautifully done. Again, you feel like you're there, and I just think that's really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, there's one I wanted to uh, speak about briefly. It's called Beats, and it's coming out on May 17th. I was lucky enough to see it the other day. It was played at Glasgow Film Festival. And this certainly is one which has very, very realistic club scenes, and, and they go out. It's, it's, it's very funny and slightly scary, you know, all these kind of people who really shouldn't be driving, going off to a field and to rave and these kind of like, free raves. And the music's great, and it just felt super authentic. And it's, it was based on a play, actually, and it felt like it really came from a real place and I guess that's what we're seeing now a lot of the people that grew up in club culture when they were quite young are now old enough more than old enough to be making movies and writing movies and it's really great to see kind of the fruits of their work in a very realistic way I think we've got a clip of this one let's have a look the only good system is a sound system and if I can't dance it it's not my revolution this is my revolution listeners this one this one I dearly hope you'll make it yours too Join us. Wendy! Oi, oi! Yeah. Drink that. Try and keep it together, right? Right. What I liked about Beats there is it, that was exemplified by that clip is it, the, the, the boys are the young, uncool ones and the girls are the really in with the rave scene and they're like, okay, this is my cousin, act cool, and then we might get into this party. But, you know, there's these slightly older, really cool girls that are just kind of, kind of ruling the show. So it was really fun. Uh, now, we, we touched on the Bechdel test earlier. And uh, we're moving on to our final segment, which is the Bechdel test, pass or fail. So to pass the test, a film has to feature two named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. So we've each picked a pass, and it can be anything. It can be recent, it can be new, it can be old. Um, I have gone for a lovely film that's really old, and that is The Sound of Music, directed by Robert Wise. 
Now, of course, this begins in a nunnery, so you have plenty of named sisters and mothers, and they speak to each other about hopes and dreams. Um, yes, they are saying you have to go and work in Captain Von Trapp's lovely mansion. Uh, what a shame. But they're also talking about Maria's self-worth, and Maria also talks to the children about their own lives and happiness and singing. And I, I do have a soft spot for the Baroness, so the sort of femme fatale character I know we're not supposed to like, but I think she's rather marvellous. Eve, what's your pass? Uh, my pass uh, is a film that I distributed, so a little bit of self-promotion. But uh, the reason why we were interested in it, I think it's because it passes, or the, the reasons why it passes the test is Skate Kitchen by Crystal Mazel, which is a feature film, so a narrative fiction, uh, about a skateboarding crew of women in New York. Originally, the director saw them on a subway in New York and heard them talking and was really intrigued by these women, young women, and their skateboards and the way they interacted and wanted to know more about their lives and asked if she could film them a bit. Uh, and she made a short film for the Venice Film Festival and sponsored by Miu Miu. And that became a short, but it was a bit of a documentary short. And through that, she got to know them and said, well, maybe I'm going to hang out with them for a year and listen to them talk and let them hang out at my house. And uh, she started to write down verbatim what they said, but then turned that into a script. So changed you know, who said what to the other characters and got them all involved and, and wrote a, a narrative feature. So it's, there's a lot of conversations between women about women's subjects, some very straightforward, some very predictable, but some quite uncomfortable, some really emotional about identity, sexuality, growing up, relationships. And then she introduced Jade and Smith to it, which adds a dimension, obviously. And originally, the girls, the young women in the press conferences would always defer to him. But as they, they got sort of more media savvy, they definitely spoke for themselves. But he added a, a level to it that was important. And even when he found out about these skate kitchen girls, even the name skate kitchen is a kind of pun of, you know, girl's place in the kitchen right. and uh, mm. and then skating being a boy's sport. But Jaden found out about them and texted them and said, hey, can I come skate with you? And they went, no. And then they <laughs> said, oh, okay. And then he was cast in, in the yeah. film. Where can people see Skate Kitchen? Well, yeah, it was released in the autumn last year and now it's available um, on iTunes and on DVD and various other places. Great. Mia, you have chosen for your pass which film? The Kindergarten Teacher, so we've been touring and we're, we're actually we're still touring this film as part of our March Spotlight uh, for Reclaim the Frame programme. We did an event with you, Anna, so we've been touring this film with film critics, psychologists and poets because it's a film that is about a woman who aspires to be a poet and discovers one of her young charges is an incredible spontaneous poet and she becomes ever increasingly obsessed by him and calls him the Mozart of poetry. So there's a very layered, very complex. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays the lead and there's so much to unpack. And it's quite hard to make a film about poetry, I think, but uh, it does it rather beautifully. So we've been doing poetry workshops at the end of each of our events and I love this film. I think it's really special. And so if people want to go and see that with Bird's Eye View, they just check out your website, I guess. Correct. Yes, yeah, no, it is really interesting. So in what, in what way does it pass the Bechdel test? She speaks to several other women, not about a man. Yeah. <laughs> she does speak mainly about a boy, but um, mm. anyway, we'll, we'll so adhere very point. specifically <laughs> to the rules. Good. So uh, now we're moving on to the section where films fail the test. And I've gone for one of my favourite films of all time, it pains me to say, which I only recently started thinking about in this level, and it is Back to the Future. You know, it, it's 
when I say favourite, you know when you're 15 years old and you watch a movie and you get really excited and it's Christmas and you're eating chocolates and it's just the magic of cinema suddenly comes over you. So that's one of the reasons that I love this film so much because of the memories of when I first saw it. But also it's a really, really slick, well put together film, as anyone will know. But the named female characters are Lorraine, Linda and Jennifer. Jennifer only appears at the beginning and the end and she only talks to men. And then, of course, when you go forward to 1955, Lorraine speaks with her daughter, Linda, but only about Marty and men. So it really, everything revolves around Marty, sadly, in Back to the Future. Although, is it a bad film? No, it's not a bad film. But at the same time, you can definitely look back at Back to the Future and be critical about it politically, I think because it's also massively materialistic. But um, on the mansplaining front, it was interesting, I was looking on the Bechtel Test website where anyone can join in and explain why something fails and why it passes and have a good old argument. Someone called Truth put, first of all, just because your retarded feminist test says this movie is a part of the patriarchy doesn't make this movie any less than amazing. It can trigger you all you want that a woman didn't talk anything about something besides Marty, but please realize this doesn't prove sexism. But maybe my logic is just part of the patriarchy. Yeah, he called it out. Yeah, he called us, call us out there. Yeah, otherwise we would not have known that. So that was, that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, Eve, what's your fail? I started thinking about what about a film that fails that is about women and a very strong woman. So I thought of the film that recently came out called The Private War about Marie Colville, and she's a war correspondent. And it is all about her, but in the, in the field that she worked in necessarily, being a journalist to start with, then being a war correspondent, and then being a war correspondent in the field narrows uh, the gender <laughs> uh, to such an extreme that it, there are no women in the film. There are a few, but she doesn't really talk to them, and it's more about her character. So can a film be you know, highly feminist and fail the test? Is that, does that mean the test needs to be revised, or what does it mean? So it doesn't mean that it's, it's not a an amazing portrayal of a strong woman who you know, ended up dying in Syria fighting. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of wonderful films are about that, just that, that isolation of a woman in a man's world, as, as you say. Yeah, I mean, there, have, there has been debate, should we continue using the Bechdel test? Should we continue talking about it? I mean, it's something that it just seems to, it's somewhere to start, isn't it? You kind of fixate on it, and it's amazing still, you meet people that haven't heard of it, and then it opens their eyes when they start applying it to things. But of course, there are many more sophisticated tests that we can use. I mean, I, I think what it throws up is how interesting this test is, and it's sort of an imperfect test. You know, there's lots of other signs and signifiers that maybe could guide us to what, why we choose to see films. So, yeah, like you said, it's sort of, I mean, The Rider is another film that we supported last year, which I absolutely love. There's barely a woman in it. You know, it's yeah. entirely, it's a female perspective on masculinity. Yeah. And I love that film, and that should equally be celebrated, but the test doesn't work for it. Yeah, the same with You Were Never Really Here. Yep. Yeah, the Lynn Ramsey yep. film. Yep. So, um, yeah. And I also thought of A Quiet Place. It You can't yeah. quite put it in because there is no dialogue, really. It's more assigned. So how do you, yeah, how do you put a test? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Quite often there are films, that are, you know, gravity, you know, just one woman in space, obviously. Yeah. Who's she yeah. going to talk to? <laughs> Any general questions then, people? Yes, go. Um, I'm interested to know. Uh, so you have all said, obviously, that in the past couple of years, the rate of conversation about inequality within the industry has obviously multiplied. But how does it compare to the actual rate of change? Are you finding that people are sort of having that conversation going, yeah, 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 but then maybe there's little follow through? I mean, I think there are kind of really sort of practical um, acknowledgements of, so there's the 4% challenge, which Time's Up in the US launched, 
which all the studios ended up signing up to, which was a response to, I think it was 2017 statistic that in the top 250 highest grossing films at the box office, 4% of them were directed by women. And that's worse than a decade ago. So all the studios, enormous number of actresses, it was actually launched by Tessa Thompson at Sundance, signed up to that. So, so that's actresses and studios all committing to make at least one film directed by a woman in the next 18 months. That will do a lot, like that one initiative alone. And I think you're, you're seeing a lot more, you know, like in the UK, the BFI's diversity standards have been adopted across the awards space, the BAFTA have adopted them, a lot of uh, financiers have adopted them. So that will, you know, they're openly saying these are the standards. So these are, you know, standards are targets. People can get around those. They can always not meet their own targets. But I think it's way harder because the public funds are policed massively, as are the broadcasters. So they're all feeling it. So I think in the next sort of 18 months, two years, the statistics will get better. We just need to work at holding them there and raising them and then because i work in the commercial sector you know we do rely a lot on public funding and support but equally on the marketplace and you know i think there's a level of confidence that needs to build as well we need to shout more you know fight more speak more uh, ask for more there was something on the radio this morning i heard about how in terms of venture capital and private investment funding in business only one percent goes to women-owned businesses, mostly because it is not asked for. You know, it's out there. So, yeah, that motivated me this morning. And someone, yeah, told me recently that I'm the only female business owner in the distribution landscape in the UK, and I didn't really think of that, but wow. but maybe I am. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> but we need to have some more. And yeah, that, that's well said, both of you. And I think it's interesting to think about how we can all help as well, which is go and see films that are female-driven, go and see films that are made by women written, spread the word, bring your friends, and just be really aware of what choices you make, whether it's streaming or whether it's in the cinema, really, don't you think? Very good question. I wanted to know, going back to the point about being... For instance, the f only female-owned distributing company in the. Yeah, I should probably say I'm not. I haven't um, checked that. Fact check that because there'll probably be some comments. Maybe, after. but probably anyway, of an independent of the, distribution company. Yeah, as a solo. That was my question. Is although you know people have signed up to the four percent challenge, it's also to do with who makes up all the crews and you know who are the team promoting it. You know, do you try and open it up to be inclusive in a broader sense? It's because I see a lot now there's a lot more inclusivity on screen and there are obviously more female directors. But where in this industry do you see it going all the way back to the bottom? I mean, you know, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that question. First of all, as an organisation, we really think about, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk. And so, like, never have all white panels, for instance, you know, always pay people, you know, don't expect people to represent all the time and, and, and do that for free. Don't always ask diverse people to only be in the room when you're talking about diverse issues. Anyone can talk about any film. So, so we really think about that a lot. Then in terms of like what we can all do, well, we all have sort of different levels of power, but certainly, you know, I think great practices like, you know, if you can't take a job and you're a freelancer, for instance, always recommend a woman recommend a woman of color you know you can bring people through and you know and then in terms of like crewing up and all of that you know that's a conversation that's happening everywhere amongst all the broadcasters and all the big funders about you know much more inclusive practice around 
crewing and you know never having all white sets never having like you know 85 percent male sets it's completely inexcusable for anyone whether you're you know a major broadcaster or a really tiny indie to not like there are so many tools online there are so many databases it's inexcusable not to be much more diverse and inclusive in your practice. We should mention this point, I forgot to say, but Mia, it all has to be said, Mia is an Oscar-winning producer, so she knows what she's talking about. Right, it uh, remains to me to thank very much our panel. We've had Mia Bays, Eve Gabbaro, Akua Jimafi, and Muna Ataro. Thank you very much. All absolutely brilliant, thank you. Thank you to Annabelle's for this absolutely gorgeous room. And Fix, what a wonderful association. It's been such a pleasure to work with Fix. Thank you so much for having us. Um, You do fantastic work. Thank you very, very much for being Girls on Film. Thanks a lot. Many thanks for listening to this episode of Girls on Film. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends. And also you can follow me at Anna Smith Journo on Twitter and Instagram. Girls on Film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archbold and Jane Long. Who's Kristen Stewart?